Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Good morning and happy Friday, everyone. If this is a voice you're not familiar with, my name is Chris Liu, and I am guest hosting for Bill today. We are uh, live from Washington, D.C., a couple blocks uh, away from the U.S. Capitol. It's a beautiful Friday here in D.C. It's 90 degrees today, which is crazy. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by Bill's uh, producer, Peter Ogburn, as well as his fantastic staff, uh, we're excited to be here today. Good to uh, see you, man. Uh, it's fun to be here. This is my second time guest hosting. Uh, I obviously didn't suck too much the first time, and you all <laughs> you all let me come back, which you I appreciate. You were great. You were great. We're happy to have you back. Well, it's fun to be here. We have a fantastic uh, set of guests today. Uh, we're going to do a little bit news of the day, and then we got some sort of deeper topics to talk about some of the changes that we probably need to make in our country uh, after Trump leaves. So today we will have Ryan Riley, uh, who's a senior justice reporter for HuffPost. Uh, and then we will have former congressman, Democratic Congressman Glenn Nye, who is the CEO at the uh, Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Uh, and then following him, we'll have Rudy Mirbani, who is a senior counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice. And so uh, we'll be talking, obviously, about the big news, which is uh, Stormy Daniels, Giuliani, uh, shakeups in uh, Trump's legal world. And then talking a little bit more about uh, what has Trump meant to our country? What has he meant to politics? Uh, and how do we move forward? Uh, but first, let me flip it over to Peter. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. If you are planning a trip to Hawaii, make sure you pack everything. Obviously, a swimsuit. Uh, obviously, some flip-flops or sandals. <laughs> obviously, some sunscreen. But wait! But wait, yesterday, Hawaii actually became the very first state to pass a bill banning the sale of any sunscreen... 
that has certain chemicals in it. Now, this is the this is why they did this. You might wonder why in the world would they be banning sunscreen? Well, a lot of sunscreen contains the chemicals oxybenzone and octanoxate, which I deserve an award for getting those there names you go. right. It sounded right? right. I don't know if it was right, I, it but might it not sounded be right. right. <laughs> it might not be right. But those two chemicals are in a lot of different sunscreens. And the problem is they contribute to coral bleaching. And so much of it gets washed off in the ocean or, you know, you put on too much sunscreen and it easily comes off and it finds its way to those coral reefs. And so they are banning, banning those sunscreens. There are over 3,500 different kinds of sunscreen products that contain those specific chemicals. And so they are getting rid of it. The bill will take effect in 2021 if it is signed by the governor. And he said he will sign it. Uh, so it now you're basically at like prescription sunscreens that contain these that, uh, that, that that don't contain these chemicals that are allowed. So I just came back from Hawaii. I was there a month ago and probably carrying contraband sunscreen. And right. it will be now, uh, you know, when you show up, they're going to ask you, did you bring any meat into the country? Do you have any fresh fruit? Let me check your sunscreen. Hey, I thought you were going to take in a different direction. There's a live volcano. I, I was going to mention that. Go ahead. Next, I, well, I was going to mention that the next hour. So just, so that's, we'll just make that a, a tease for next hour when we get to that. But I did want to mention another story because you're a Twitter guy. You're on Twitter. Huge Twitter guy. Where are you on Twitter? <laughs> Thank you. You like how I teach? That up Chris Lou 44 on Twitter. Chris Lou 44 on Twitter. Well, Twitter yesterday came out and recommended that all of its users, 336 million different users, all of them need to change their password. They discovered a bug that saved users user passwords in what they are calling an internal log that is unprotected. They said they fixed the issue. But because it had gone on for so long and had gone unnoticed for so long, literally everyone on Twitter might have had their password compromised. And I will tell you, I did do it, and I recommend everyone do it. It's relatively easy. Yeah, look, we, we're on Twitter, at BP Show. We take a lot of comments from people. We know that you're out there. Uh, if you're on Twitter, if you're trying to use it to reach out to the show at BP Show, just change your password. That's all we're asking you to do. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Happy Friday, everyone. My name is Chris Liu, and I am guest hosting for Bill on this beautiful Friday, very warm Friday here in Washington, D.C. I am joined by Bill's wonderful staff, including Peter Ogburn, his producer. Good to see you back, man. It's fun to be here. My second time guest hosting. Uh, you know, I feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, I'm still not comfortable with the short amount of bathroom breaks you've given me. So <laughs> if I start to sound a little dehydrated um, uh, about an hour into the show, it's because I, you know, I'm not allowed to any coffee because I can't go to the bathroom. Yeah, it's it's pretty messed up how we literally lock you into that room. You really do yeah, lock I'm me. I'm sorry I, you can't. Leave. I I I I'm amazed that Bill does this every morning. Well, <laughs> well look. Uh, my name is Chris Lou. You can follow me on Twitter, Chris Lou 44. You can follow. Uh, the Bill Press Show, uh, a BP show uh, at Twitter. Uh, you can subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com, The Bill Press Show. Uh, there we're on Patreon, we're on Facebook. Uh, the podcast is on iTunes. 
uh, as well. So we've got a fantastic show today. Uh, a couple of guests who are uh, former, well, I, I was going to say former friends. They are current friends, former colleagues of mine. Uh, first, we're going to uh, talk to Ryan Riley. Ryan is the senior justice reporter for HuffPost, and he's been doing some great reporting on Mueller. Uh, and obviously, this whole investigation took kind of an odd turn on Wednesday evening, and we'll talk a little bit more about that with Mayor Giuliani apparently going rogue, although the stories are a little unclear as to how much the president knew about that. Uh, and then after that, I think we're going to take a, kind of a, a little bit deeper, more intellectual dive uh, into you know what has happened to our country over these past 15 months. Uh, we're first going to have Glenn Nye. Glenn is a former congressman from uh, my uh, state, the, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia. He represented the second congressional district for one term uh, and is now the CEO of a think tank in Washington called the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. And um, the center that Glenn runs has a brand new initiative on incivility in politics and how we can fix that. And so that's a much needed initiative. And so uh, that will be a great conversation. And then uh, in the the last half hour, uh, we have Rudy Mirbani. Rudy um, had a number of important jobs during the Obama administration, most notably as the director of the presidential personnel office in the uh, Obama administration. So Rudy can give you kind of an interesting perspective on all things nominations and appointments in Trump world and why they can't seem to get it right. Uh, I have to say, I will also be asking Rudy about this incredible Washington Post story from about a month ago uh, that PPO, which is what the office is called, apparently has become the party place in the Trump White House and people hang out and vape there and uh, play drinking games, which is not not what I remember. Uh, I was going to say, it's kind of yeah, like what you were doing. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, we would just yeah. hang out there and, and play drinking games. And then Rudy, as importantly now, is at the uh, Brennan Center, uh, which has a brand new initiative on um, how we take democratic norms and strengthen them. So, you know, two important conversations. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, this has been kind of a, a well, I, I, I want to say it's been a nutty week, although it's probably been a typical week uh, in Trump world. I was just kind of listing some of the things that have happened in the last seven days. Uh, we've had this odd bromance between uh, Trump and Kanye West. Uh, we've had the Ronnie Jackson nomination that fell apart. That actually fell apart last Friday morning. So we're, to- we're seven days away from that. It, it, it's <laughs> You mentioned that this morning. We were talking in our pre-show meeting, right? And I thought to myself, that it, it literally has been like less than a week, right? Like right out yeah. a week, R- right out a week. Because we... I remember it happened during uh-huh. the show on Friday of last week, right? Uh, <laughs> and, Which is remarkable. Okay, so that was Friday. Friday also last Friday, the House. Oh, I, I'm not going to say the House Intelligence Committee. The Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee uh, released their report that they claimed exonerated the president. There was um, uh, last Saturday night was the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which I know you all talked a lot about um, the, the jokes about Sarah Sanders. Uh, Monday, uh, we had the NBC reporting on Monday evening where John Kelly apparently called the president an idiot, which is not a moron. Uh, we could debate which whether it's better to be an idiot or moron. I think they're both equally bad. Uh, <laughs> Please don't call me either. Right. And particularly <laughs> when you add a, a qualifying term in front of one of those, uh, which apparently what Tillerson <laughs> may have said. Um, 
So that was Monday night. We've had a steady stream of Scott Pruitt stories, and I'll go into that a little bit. Uh, we have shakeups on the Trump legal team. Uh, Ty Cobb, not the baseball player, but the guy with kind of that funny villainy mustache, uh, has stepped down. Um, you'll recall that uh, the other main lawyer on Trump's legal team, John Dowd, has also stepped down as well. Uh, we have a new person with the name Emmett Flood, um, apparently a, a pretty top-notch lawyer. Uh, we had on Wednesday the raid on Donald Trump's doctor's office. Again, not Ronnie Jackson. The guy. This is now the other guy with the kind of crazy look about him. Uh, who and apparently the raid they took away all of the Donald Trump's uh, medical records. Um, and I, apparently the story is that they were upset that he had. Uh, that that he the doctor had said that Donald Trump uses a hair replacement uh, medicine Propecia I think it was Propecia yeah Propecia uh, and then obviously Wednesday night we had the uh, <laughs> we had the crazy train wreck that is Major Giuliani on the Sean Hannity show disclosing the Stormy Daniels uh, payment uh, in between all of that that was this Trump world in between all of that we had. A house chaplain that got fired and now is apparently back in his job again. He's back. He is back. We have had some interesting admissions by uh, Republicans. We've had uh, Marco Rubio in the last week admitting uh, that uh, the tax cuts have not gone to increase wages of workers, which is pretty much what we all predicted. Uh, We've got Trump's former HHS secretary, Tom Price, uh, admitting that Republican efforts to sabotage the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, have raised premiums or will raise premiums. Um, uh, and then yesterday, uh, I didn't know this, was National Prayer Day. Yeah. Uh, and so twenty less than 24 hours after Giuliani um, acknowledges that um, the money paid to uh, Michael Cohen to Stormy Daniels did ultimately come from the president, and the president was aware of that. You have the president uh, in the uh, Rose Garden, I think it was, um, announcing a new faith initiative. Let's play that clip. I will soon be signing an executive order to create a faith initiative at the White House. Peter, what faith initiative is, is <laughs> that? That you that that lawyers who pay hush money will have faith that their clients will pay them back? I think that Donald Trump thinks that Faith Initiative is the name of a porn star. (laughs) Oh, we, you know, Peter, we can't actually. Oh, my gosh. We have to trademark that. Right. right? I mean, we could make some serious money on that. (laughs) Right. Like he probably is looking for a porn star whose name is Faith initiative that's the oh. only reason that he would actually get into that oh, somebody that, please that. go on twitter and create that that, that twitter page yeah. and we need to start tweeting off of it that. really is amazing that that he could come out the day after i mean 12 hours after essentially 12 hours after rudy giuliani goes on fox news with sean hannity and confirms that donald trump paid personal money to keep an adult film actress quiet that he had an affair with. And then he turns around and goes and celebrates the national day of prayer and talks about creating these new faith initiatives. I I mean, mean, that's 
stunning. Yeah, I, we use the word shameless a lot. I'm not <laughs> even sure shameless even does it justice anymore. We're going to have to redefine the word shameless. Right. And, you know, and you have these faith leaders standing there with him. And there's been, you know, a lot of reporting about Trump's support from white evangelicals and how it is, you know, higher than previous presidents, even Republican presidents. It's it's growing uh, it, it, it's 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 odd to say the least. It's easy for me to say, not being white evangelical, that they are hypocrites. But there's something else there, and you know, perhaps if I don't suck on this second guest host, I will uh, bring some folks in who can have this conversation. There were several uh, f- colleagues of mine in the Obama White House who uh, who worked on the Faith Initiative who might be able to better discern what what is what I think is a pretty obvious disconnect. You know, it, it's it's such a fascinating conversation to have, right? Because I'm one of those people that is like, get religion out of government, full stop, right? All together. Get it all out of the government. I don't think it has any place in there. However, uh, there have been Democrats who have been in the office, Barack Obama being one of them, that has found, that found a way to uh, embrace religion in his life and in the political world, without having it dictate how policy gets made, which is a problem that a lot of Republicans have gotten themselves into in the past. Right? No, that's exactly so there is right. a way to sort of thread that needle. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, and you know, and and there's the the uh, the ludicrous nature of Trump's statements in the uh, remarks yesterday. He talked about how his favorite book is the Bible. Now, I, uh, I, by the way, I'm Chris Liu. I'm guest hosting today for uh, Bill Press. Uh, I had the privilege of working for Barack Obama for 11 out of his 12 years in Washington. Uh, Barack Obama is a deep man of faith. If we were playing uh, biblical Jeopardy, he would dust Donald Trump. He would go to the $1,000 questions immediately (laughs) and start quoting scripture uh, verse by verse, but it, it's an odd thing. And, you know, and I've talked to folks who know this and say, you know, a lot of it is abortion. Um, a, a lot of it is judicial nominations, uh, you know, and I, 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 but we ought to explore this conversation more than, um, and just this time. Yeah, I agree. And I, I really do think that we're at an interesting time with, uh, religion and politics in that, I think that progressives, religious progressives, are starting to find their voice, um, which they hadn't in previous years, right? Like, I grew up in an evangelical house. I saw how Republican—and it was a conservative house. I saw how conservatives just sort of grabbed a hold of the evangelical vote and message and made it their own. And Democrats just kind of watched it go by, frankly. And now you have really progressive religious leaders out there um, you know, whether it's um, uh, Dr. Bar- Reverend Dr. Barber or Jim Wallace or other people that are out there that are saying like, no, no, no. If you look at the teachings of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian and you believe in this, there is a very, very, very big part of this that is helping the poor, yeah. help the people that need help, feed the hungry, things like that. As opposed to everything that Republicans have done when they have power, which is take food out of the mouths of people that are hungry. And you add then the disconnect with the firing of the House chaplain, who was a Jesuit priest, 
uh, and ostensibly fired for a couple of reasons. One is that he may have done in one of his opening prayers during the tax debate uh, a call for fairness um, as uh, policymakers considered uh, how the tax burdens should be placed. Uh, that was one reason he may have been fired. The other, the second reason he may have been fired uh, was because the theory being that as a, a Catholic priest, he could not counsel uh, members of Congress um, about personal issues involving um, spouses or family members. Um, and so you have that incident, which does seem to suggest, again, an anti-Catholic bias juxtaposed with National Day of Prayer juxtaposed with Stormy Daniels. It's a very it's it's an odd period of time in religion and politics in Washington right now. I want to read a uh, a really great tweet from our friend Matt Fuller, who's on the show often. And he just said, Paul Ryan, not actually having a conversation with the House chaplain before he asked for his resignation and sending his chief of staff to do the job squares with my idea of Paul Ryan. So. That's as the story unfolded. It turns out Paul Ryan did not do what he said he did. Right, like right. he came out and he said, "Look, I had I had multiple members saying this is not acceptable. We need to get uh, rid of this guy. He's not doing his job. He's not serving us." And members, Republican members, came out and they were like, "Uh, you're making that up. You didn't hear from me, and I didn't hear from anybody else." And it feels like you're just sort of grinding an axe here, dude. Right. Well, look, Which before— it turns out that's what, he, that's what he was doing. That's exactly right. Look, uh, before we get out of this topic of uh, religion, which is one that uh, I, of all people, should not be discussing, uh, I do want to play a clip from uh, the vice president uh, talking about uh, his boss as, as a man of faith. Today, President Trump will take another strong step to protect and promote Americans of faith, because in this White House— Believers of every background have a champion in President Donald Trump. I, I know we're on the radio, so you can't see me shaking my head, but I'm just, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say at the, about that. You know, man, I, I have this conversation with my parents a lot because I, I know I feel like I've mentioned this all the time, right? But my parents voted for Donald Trump and they're, they're, they're very religious people. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. And we had this conversation about the payment to Stormy Daniels and all this stuff. And I, I don't know if their story is unique to other people, but they're over Donald Trump. They're just like, no, this is this is too much. And part of it is like they take their faith more seriously than their politics. And I know that a lot of people don't. Yeah. No. I mean, if you look at Donald Trump's base and you look at the support he has, among evangelicals, I think you could easily point to, like, yeah, they care about their politics more than their faith. Yeah. Because if you consider yourself to be a person of faith and you consider to be someone who follows the work and the teachings of of Christ, which I am not, but my parents are, and there are a lot of people who are, right? If you believe in that stuff, how could you possibly, how could you possibly support Donald Trump? For, and, and, like, pick a reason. Right. And and, and to have, again, look, uh, you know, you're the vice president of the United States. Mike Pence is the vice president. He, you know, he needs to say whatever he has to say about his boss. But to say that people of faith have no greater champion than Donald Trump is absurd. Uh, although I will say just one funny moment, since we know how the vice president is around gay people. Uh, there was this kind of funny moment yesterday where he swore in 
the new ambassador to Germany. I don't know if you saw this, Peter. He I didn't. Okay, so the new ambassador to Germany is openly gay, which is fantastic. Um, he is uh, being sworn in with his partner. I don't know if it's a husband or what. It's a partner. The partner's holding um, the Bible and um, as the new ambassador is being sworn in, and, and Pence is swearing him in. And um, you could just have a field day kind of putting your own caption or thought bubbles as to what Pence is thinking <laughs> as he's swearing in an openly gay ambassador. Uh, well, look, um, I, I did not want to devolve into religion because it's not a subject I know well, uh, but uh, I am Chris Liu. Uh, I'm guest hosting for Bill this morning. Um, I am uh, a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, which is a center that studies the presidency and studies politics. We've got some fantastic guests uh, in the 8 o'clock hour who can talk a little bit more about where our country is and how we fix it going forward after Trump. Um, uh, And, you know, one of the jobs I had in the Obama administration was as the White House Cabinet Secretary which meant that I managed the cabinet. And one of the tasks, one of the most important tasks I had was to ensure that cabinet members uh, did not get into trouble and certainly did not embarrass the president. And uh, I will tell you that every day I open the paper, I mean, I will say every, every couple hours I open the paper and I see another story about Scott Pruitt, the EPA administrator. He is really the poster child for everything that people hate about politics. And so as I was preparing for the show, I pulled a number of stories about him. And then literally in the last 12 hours, there have been another (laughs) set of stories. And if you can think of an ethical impropriety, Scott Pruitt has committed it. Now, to be fair, uh, my good friend Ron Klain, um, who, who served as the chief of staff to Vice President Biden, tweeted at me the other day when I made this comment on another show. And he said... Look, I don't think Scott Pruitt has actually ripped out the mattress tag that you're not supposed to rip out. Other than that, he probably has committed every other impropriety. Um, and just overnight. So let me just give you two stories overnight. So yesterday yesterday afternoon, um, New York Times, which has done some fantastic reporting about uh, Scott Pruitt's web of business connections in Oklahoma, how he somehow managed to... Uh, buy luxury homes with the assistance of business and law firm uh, associates who have helped him. He bought a uh, a stake in a minor league franchise, Um, reported. um, And I'll just read from the New York Times uh, story yesterday. Uh, As a state senator in Oklahoma 15 years ago, uh, Mr. Pruitt bought a home in the state capitol with a registered lobbyist who was pushing for changes to the state's workers' compensation rules, changes that Mr. Pruitt championed in the legislature. So he bought a house with a lobbyist who was lobbying the Oklahoma legislature on on legislative changes that Pruitt supported. Uh, That's astounding. Uh, Never been reported before. Uh, And then late last night, um, the Washington Post (laughs) reported we've heard way too much about uh, Scott Pruitt's propensity for first-class travel, his uh, security details, his purchase of the $43,000 soundproof booth. Uh, earlier this week, we learned that Scott Pruitt uh, took a trip to Morocco uh, that cost the federal government $100,000. Um, it was arranged by a lobbyist friend of his who was getting a $40,000 a month retainer for the government of Morocco. Uh, One of the tasks was to help organize this trip. So that was Morocco. Uh, We learned yesterday morning, because the stories literally come out 
multiple times a day. There was a trip that Pruitt tried to take to Australia that was also arranged by a lobbyist friend of his. Uh, and then late last night, uh, the Washington Post reported um, that a trip that Pruitt took to Israel was also arranged by business and uh, political associates. Uh, and let me just read you one paragraph from that article. Washington Post, um, Juliet Eilprin and Brady D- uh, Dennis, who have done great reporting on this, quote, after taking office last year, Pruitt drew up a list of at least a dozen countries he hoped to visit and urged aides to help him find official reasons to travel. Uh, Pruitt then enlisted well-connected friends and political allies to help him make the trips happen. Um, he His goal was to visit one country every single month. Uh, I mean, this is like a, what is this like? This is what kids do after they graduate from college. They like (laughs) ask dad to go visit or I shouldn't say mom or dad. Hey, send me on this uh, European boondoggle trip. Yeah. I remember whenever I was named cabinet secretary, I backpacked across (laughs) Europe to go find myself. (laughs) I I mean, again, I I said this at the outset. Uh, I worked for Barack Obama for 11 out of 12 years. Uh, Obama and I are actually law school classmates. Had I done even one of the things that Scott Pruitt has been accused of doing over the last 15 months, I would have been out on the street. And the guy, the fact that he gets away with this, uh, and again, I don't know if we're at the end of the line for here. I, the, the line just keeps going on and on. But it is astounding. I mean, this is leaving aside the hypocrisy about Trump saying I'm draining the swamp. I mean, we're now in the swampiest possible place. It's hard to imagine a more... I'll say it, a more corrupt cabinet member in recent history. Well, it's it's funny because we talked about how one of the one of the messaging things that Democrats are going to use for the upcoming midterms is a throwback to something that we heard before, and that is they're going to use the phrase culture of corruption. And we've been doing this show for a while, and I remember that was a phrase that a lot of people running for Congress used when George W. Bush was president. Yeah. And there were a like a, a lot of corrupt situations happening around town. I would say that that pales in comparison to what we're seeing now. So it's totally appropriate to bring it back. I mean, when you just look at Scott Pruitt alone, the the uh, just brazen uh, open grift that you're seeing from him is certainly stunning. Yeah, it is certainly stunning. And I would say for those of you who are probably younger than me and Peter, go back and look at the 2006 midterm elections. Um, This was during the period of time of Jack Abramoff, Tom DeLay, Bob Ney, Duke Cunningham. We had a scandal involving Mark Foley towards the end of that campaign cycle. Uh, And Democrats ran very successfully on this idea of culture of corruption. And it really is what uh, took them over the top, both in the House and Senate. And you see that playing out very, very vividly here. Uh, you it's know, almost and, like this is what happens when Republicans get power. Well, and you know, <laughs> and you know, the buck ultimately stops uh, with the person at the top. And when you've got a president from day one who not only shows an indifference to ethics, but really a disregard for ethics, um, he it, it basically becomes open season for everyone under him to exploit the system as much as possible. Yeah. And and the fact that he's putting up sort of a front now and continues to say Scott Pruitt is a good man, Scott Pruitt did nothing wrong, whatever. I, I, I mean, he, Scott Pruitt's 
at this point has survived it, and I don't know what it would be that would ultimately bring him down. No, it, it's it, it's stunning. Uh, well, look, this is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill Press. Uh, it is a beautiful Friday morning, and we'll be back with our guest. This is the Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. This is Chris Liu. I am guest hosting for Bill on a beautiful Friday morning, a warm Friday morning here in Washington, D.C. I know all the listeners keep saying, why do you keep saying that? Because it's like 90 degrees here, which is kind of insane. Um, please follow me on Twitter, Chris Liu 44 I uh, hope you will subscribe to The Bill Press Show on YouTube, uh, youtube.com, The Bill Press Show, uh, as well as following uh, Bill and the show on Twitter at BP Show. Uh, we've got a fantastic guest in first this morning, Ryan Riley. Uh, Ryan is the senior justice reporter for HuffPost, and you can follow him at Ryan Riley. Uh, Ryan, at Ryan J. Riley. There's probably some other Ryan Riley who, probably. yeah, I'm okay. on that, yeah. Uh, well, Ryan, thanks for coming in. Um, there's a lot going on right now. Uh, you've been writing recently about uh, uh, you've, uh, the mayor Giuliani's interview on Stormy Daniels, uh, the Republican attacks on Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, uh, the House Intel report. And we've had just kind of this amazing, I'll say flood of news, although that's mm-hmm. an inadvertent pun with the new name of the um, lawyer who's serving Trump. Uh, lots to break down here. Um, what did you make? I, I'm just curious. Wednesday night's interview with Giuliani on Sean Hannity. Uh, when did you find out about that? And what did you make as you were watching this? What appeared from the outside to be a train wreck happening in real time? Yeah, you know, I was watching it live. I mean, I think that um, part, an essential part of the DOJ beat these days is watching Sean Hannity. Because you sort <laughs> of can, like, you know, look in the future and see, okay, here's what the president's going to tweet about tomorrow. Here's what my day is going to look like. I mean, it, it's a cycle, right? So, you know, what's on Sean Hannity can sometimes dictate, you know, the next morning. Same thing with Fox and Friends. Both are on my DVR. I don't always get to Fox and Friends, but pretty much every day I get to Hannity. Um, and I think that that really, you know, it shows sort of the pitfalls of picking your your lawyers based on who you see on television. Um, it's not the best strategy necessarily. And I think with Giuliani, it's like that was just that just seemed like, you know, an own goal. Like, why would they disclose? It, they tried to make it out like it was a strategy afterwards. But if that's a strategy, you wouldn't have this blatant inconsistency between what the president said previously and what Giuliani is saying now. And I mean, the idea that like. <laughs> trying to make out the situation where an attorney takes out a a home equity loan on his own home to pay off a porn star and then you pay him back via retainer fees over several months like trying to make that out as though it's just as normal everyday sort of run of the mill legal practice is just it was quite something i mean i don't know if that was there's no situation in which a law firm if that was like an approved practice right like no one's going to be like yeah oh yeah we're going to front this money for this porn star payoff and then like they're going to pay us back via retainer fees oh and you know why don't one of our attorneys why don't they go and like you know take out a home equity loan so we don't have to take it out of the you know the company coffers and then pay it it's just crazy well and, and that was there were two two important things that came out of that and i don't remember if it was Trump's tweets yesterday morning or Giuliani's interview where he said, oh, this is a common thing with celebrities, yeah. A. And then Giuliani also said, yeah, when Cohen would get reimbursed for this, he would get a little profit out of that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, essentially, I think it 
the total fee came to like two hundred and fifty thousand something uh, over With taxes the and right. Which I mean, so he, yeah, I mean, I guess that was some of that was I guess his legal fees for doing this because basically they said it was like a no show job that he wasn't actually doing any legal work, but they were paying him, um, you know, thirty five thousand dollars a month, which is a hefty, you know, retainer. Um, it's just sort of unimaginable this happening in any other. In any other presidency. Yeah, and the reporting yesterday, after the fact reporting is fascinating, um, that John Kelly, the chief of staff, did not know about it. Don McGahn, the uh, White House counsel, did not know. Sarah Sanders, the uh, press secretary, did not know. So if this was an organized strategy, mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that you would loop in a couple more people so that they could react to it. Uh, do you think... Uh, a lot of the legal analysis this morning has been that Giuliani made this whole situation worse, legally yeah. and politically. Do you agree? I think both. Yeah. I, I mean, there's just because I mean, there's so many situations of what did the president know? What did he know it? And the idea, I mean, first of all, Giuliani is getting all the second hand, right? So we don't actually know how. I mean, even if he's telling the truth of what he knows, we don't know how reliable the information that he received is because he's saying, you know, he wasn't looped into any of this at the beginning. It seemed like, and he's also claiming that somehow that. Trump didn't know about this until afterwards, right? So he's saying that um, Cohen just went out there and did this on his own and, you know, paid off this star, took out a home equity loan. I, the home equity loan just blows my mind. I, I keep coming back to that one. Like the idea that like, think about how many steps go into that. Like, yeah, like like there's like bank fraud. There's so many things involved in that. Um, anyway, but so, but the idea that like that was some sort of strategy just doesn't make a lot of sense. So we really don't know what the president knew about it. But it seems unlikely and seems like very questionable, this idea that he just had no clue about it. So I meant to cover this in the first half hour when Peter and I just wrapped, but do you follow George Conway's oh my God. Twitter? I have, I have push alerts. Peter, do you follow this? No. no. This I is, don't. so Kellyanne Conway's, Kellyanne Conway's husband mm -hmm. is a prominent lawyer in New York City. And he is like live tweeting the Giuliani interview. Uh, he he he. Then you know this 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 idea that the Trump folks have put out that a loan from Michael Cohen that is repaid by personal funds of Trump uh, is somehow not a campaign violation. George Conway tweets out the relevant part of the FEC guidance on this that disputes that idea. Not to mention the fact that he also is like tweeting about. Uh, the fake doctor's note. Uh, he's tweeting about um, Rod Rosenstein. I mean, it's it is it is. Uh, it, George Conway is apparently part of the resistance now, from what I could tell from this Twitter feed. <laughs> he was like this close to becoming like a the very high, yeah, prominent, like exactly. very prominent yeah. figure in the Justice Department. Um, yeah, I mean, I have push alerts for George Conway. I mean, like he's I, I everything that you come out of him, you're just like what? Like you know, you're just imagining sort of the disputes that that must cause in the household. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just shocking. I mean, like, yeah, because the idea that Giuliani also sort of did two different messages, right? He said that they're doing this for their marriage because the the whole question here is whether or not this was a campaign, you know, related to the campaign. Right. It seems sort of obvious in the days before the election that, yeah, obviously the idea this was related to the campaign. What the Trump administration or what the Trump, you know, folks are going to come back and say is that, no, 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 this is all about their marriage. They didn't want to be personally embarrassed, yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of um, the implications of the uh, the John Edwards case come up a lot in yeah. this um, because it was sort of a similar situation um, where he ultimately, you know, wasn't convicted um, because this is the idea is that, OK, this was just a payment for, you know, protecting our reputation. This had nothing to do with the campaign. But then he immediately says, like, 
oh, can you imagine, though, if this came out right before the campaign? It would have been devastating. Yeah. Like, so you immediately undermine your legal argument is, no, 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 this had nothing to do with the campaign. And then you immediately say, can you imagine if this came out right before the election? It's just it, it doesn't make any sense. He's not. He doesn't seem like a very competent lawyer no. these days. And, you know, there was Sarah Sanders got beaten up justifiably yesterday on this issue during the uh, the press conference, and she was challenged by a lot of people as to uh, her previous statements of this. Um, we've got, Peter, we got a couple clips from Sarah Sanders. Yeah, I, w- I want to walk through this a little bit Go because ahead. there were a lot, of, a lot of stuff from her yesterday. First of all, what I found to be amazing is she said that she first found out about this stuff when Rudy Giuliani mentioned it during the <laughs> Hannity interview. Here she is telling the, uh, uh, the press briefing that. The first awareness I had was during the interview last night. So th- she obviously got some pushback on that and said, well, we just kind of were giving you guys the best information we had at the time. The president has denied and continues to deny the underlying claim. And again, I've given the best information I had at the time. And she did multiple times yesterday hide behind... Uh, this line. I think it's fair to say that there's ongoing litigation ongoing and litigation. that the president's attorneys who have uh, the greatest amount of visibility into this have spoken about this both at length last night, again this morning. The president's put out uh, multiple tweets on this this morning. I don't have anything else Why to say. And uh, this clip, this is between, this is, that was uh, during a little uh, uh, scrum with reporters during the press briefing again. John Carl, Jonathan Carl from ABC News asked her sort of the pressing question, did Donald Trump lie when he said that Michael Cohn took care of it, he didn't have anything to do with it, you're going to have to ask him about it. Did Donald Trump lie? Did you know that the president did not tell the truth when he said that he didn't know about the payment? Again, Mayor Giuliani has uh, spoken at length about this, both last night and this morning. There's ongoing litigation. I'm not going to be able to comment. So that's actually a question I wanted to ask Ryan, right? Because yesterday when this came out, my first reaction was, okay, if their official story here is Donald Trump paid the money back uh, several months ago, but he but he came out and he lied to the American people when he said that he didn't, which we he he did do. He came out and said that he didn't do it. Uh, lying to the American public is not a crime. Correct. He was not under. You know, he was not talking to the FBI. He was talking to reporters. He was not, you know, under right. oath in any situation. It's, it's sort of like the Bill Clinton situation, right? Like lying to the American people when he said that he did not have sex with that woman, yeah. Miss Lewinsky, was not a crime. Perjuring himself was, in fact, a crime, and that's what he got in trouble for. So that's what I think Donald Trump and his legal team might be banking on now. Mm-hmm. That's That's what it looks like to me. Like he could possibly skirt that. By just saying, like, yeah, okay, we did lie. We lied to the American people, but politicians lie sometimes. Yeah, I think that they're still going to pick apart that idea that he lied because I've seen some instances of this where they've, like, gone into individual questions he was asked on the plane at the time. And, you know, and he doesn't respond to the last question, which was, like, you know, was I, I forget what it was, but it was essentially was it, like, structured in some way where he was paid back. He just doesn't respond to that one. Um, I mean, he obviously misled, but I guess lie is what they're going to, like, you know. Yeah, and let's not get uh, – so let's parse a couple things out here. I mean, the investigation right now into Michael Cohen is being conducted by the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. It is actually distinct from the special counsel's investigation. Yet Giuliani did also make news about the firing of the FBI director, Jim Comey, 
where he said Comey was fired because he would not give assurances, public assurances, that Trump was not a subject of the investigation. Yeah. So, again, this is I don't know how many explanations we've now heard about why Comey was fired, uh, but it does lend credence to Comey's idea, uh, Co- Co- Comey's testimony that Trump wanted loyalty from Comey and Comey's inability to give that assurance uh, and potentially derail the investigation was why he was fired. And, and unfortunately, that little snippet from Giuliani has gotten kind of lost in the Stormy Daniels revelations as well. What also got lost was Mayor Giuliani referring to FBI agents as stormtroopers. Right. I mean, which is a pretty significant, you know, for the party of law and order to come out and, you know, the America's mayor, the guy who was going in and, you know, was the the face of America and the face of American law enforcement to go in and call American law enforcement officials stormtroopers. Was uh, was quite a moment there. Yeah, and you know, I think it fits more broadly into the the Republican Party's attacks on the intelligence community more broadly, and it's it's troubling. Um, obviously, the other uh, way too many uh, disclosures this week. I, I, we we've got a new legal team mm-hmm. um, helping uh, the president. Uh, what do you think this does in terms of their posture towards the special counsel and the potential of a interview with Mueller? Yeah, I mean. Optics-wise, I can't imagine Trump's too happy with bringing in someone who is working on the, you know, the Clinton, um, you know, impeachment matter. Um, but I think that you know that's kind of who you want. You want somebody behind the scenes who actually has experience in these sort of matters, and as opposed to Giuliani, who's going out there as a wrecking ball on Fox and Friends, and you know, sort of blowing up your entire legal strategy. So it's sort of like, I guess they're sort of the yin and yang of the, you know, of of this uh, this matter where it's you know one person is actually doing the work behind the scenes and the other person is, you know, satisfying Trump by going on television and representing his viewpoint and sort of simultaneously undermining your legal strategy. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill Press on a Friday morning from D.C. Uh, I'm joined by Ryan R- Riley. I was about to say Ryan J. Riley. Ryan J. <laughs> Riley is how you follow him on Twitter. Ryan is the senior justice reporter for HuffPost, and we're obviously talking about the developments uh, from Wednesday night's Giuliani interview. Uh, one thing we didn't mention, I mean, I, I kind of did this whole uh, roundup of things that have happened over the last week. I forgot to mention the leak of the 49 questions that apparently Mr. Mueller wanted to ask the president. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, let's get, who do you think leaked that? Oh, I mean, and, I, there's almost no <laughs> chance, this uh, uh, zero chance. Like, I would bet, you know, I would bet a lot of money on that. The fact that this did not come from the Mueller team. I, I have to say, by the way, you are the third guest on the show <laughs> to say I would bet any amount of money <laughs> that it did not come from Robert Mueller. The <laughs> like, problem look- is I don't think anyone take that other – anyone who's like – You'd have to find an idiot to take the other side of that bet. That's the problem. No one's going to take that other side. Like, I really think this came for the the Mueller team. First of all, I mean, even if you just look at the like the phrasing of the questions, and I mean, the subsequent reporting has been, you know, has put this out there that the phrasing of the questions is all basically like rewritten from them hearing it audibly. Right. Um, So this is like what the you know what Trump's team prepared, and then that's what's getting relayed here. I will say that behind the scenes, I think there has been some rumors, certainly, uh, about, like, exactly who this came from. Um, But I think it's very, 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 very safe to say that this came from somewhere within the Trump team or someone who saw this from the Trump team. So in a— And it would have to be somebody fairly in the inner circle— 
of the Trump team, right? Like, I, or, or, or would it not? I don't know. I mean, it seems like this would be something if that... This, yeah, if there's a well-organized team that had discipline about who got documents, I think that's true, I but... think you just answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think it nece- I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, they could have, like, let way too many people have access to this. It's quite So, in um, Ty Cobb, de- the departing uh, main attorney for the president, uh, in an interview with the New York Times, I think, was asked about this, and he said... Uh, he doesn't believe it came from Mueller as well, the leak. And he says this was clearly leaked by somebody who wants this interview not to happen. Uh, do you think the fact that, I, I, you know, I was struck by the breadth of these questions, and that's only what was uh, leaked. There mm-hmm. could have been, you know, there, who knows how many questions are out there. Mm-hmm. Do you think this makes that interview less likely? And if that interview becomes less likely, a voluntary interview becomes less likely, do you think Mueller tries to push it with a subpoena? Um, to the second question, yeah, I think that I think that that's on the table. Spinning's on the table. Um, but I think that you know, there's certainly every person who's appeared on Fox News who's like in support of the president has been pushing this message: is like, don't, 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 don't do this interview. Don't do this interview. It's a perjury trap. Is what they've been referring to in, in recent days. And I mean, the idea here is that Trump wants to do this, and I'm kind of honestly surprised that Democrats haven't been pushing like sort of like you know, trying to bait him into it a little bit more because, I mean, that's, it's, Trump thinks he can, <laughs> Trump thinks he can overcome this. He thinks he can go in and just like, let me answer these questions. It's fine. Like, I'm not scared of anything. And, you know, the idea of like taking the fifth is, you know, he's gone out there and said, you know, the mob takes the fifth. That was a, a line that he used on the campaign trail. Um, so, I mean, he wants, there's a part of him that wants to do this. Giuliani has said that, you know, He's the president's like, let me at him. You know, he wants to go out there and do this. And it's a terrible legal strategy. And it's a terrible idea if you're a Trump's lawyers, especially because, I mean, he has such problems just, you know, telling the basic truth about what happened. Um, it's not really a controversial statement at this. No, point. I mean, if you go back, the Washington Post does this great tracker about what they euphemistically call false and misleading claims by the mm-hmm. president. They've now passed 3000 since this administration has started. We can simply just say there's 3000 lies he's told. You tell any one of those in an interview with federal law enforcement, yeah. uh, that's perjury. Yeah. Or it's 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 a it's a misleading statement that that creates a um, legal jeopardy. Um the other thing you've been writing about and that's that's been in the news this week is um is Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General. Uh there appears to be a concerted effort not only by our good friends at Fox News but also by Republicans on the Hill um, to, to 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 try to get Rosenstein out of there as a way to derail Mueller. And this week there was a leak of potential articles of impeachment against Rod Rosenstein. Uh, and he pushed back very forcefully this week. Um, what's your take on all of this? Yeah, I mean, he's been pretty quiet up to this point. Um, what's interesting is he always sort of like when <laughs> his sort of way of dodging this, whenever Trump says something directly, he'll say, oh, the media says this. And it's like, no, Trump said that. Like, and but he'll he has to find another target other than his you know boss. So he goes with, oh, the media said this, and um, he's never really pushed back very strongly um, to this point. But that sort of changed this week because of these articles of impeachment, and basically came out this you know, museum appearance um, was talking about you know freedom, or I guess you know the First Amendment, the importance of the First Amendment um, in connection with Wall Day, um, and was asked about these you know articles of impeachment, and he said that you know. The Justice Department isn't going to be intimidated, and they, people should know that by now. Um, I mean, the idea that this is a good faith effort from 
the House Republicans is really tough to swallow. Um, I mean, they're asking uh, one of the key things they're asking for right now is this full memo, which you know lays out the details of an ongoing investigation. And where do you think that memo goes when that memo goes from DOJ to uh, the House Republicans? Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, the, it would be a matter of how many minutes it would leak to <laughs> to Fox. I think. Um, yeah, I mean. It's just tough. It's tough to like it, and so that, that was what my piece really was about this week. Was yeah, actually, why don't you talk? Yeah. About, I thought I think your piece was an important thing, and I want to recommend uh, folks not only follow Ryan on Ryan J. Riley, but also read this piece he did for HuffPost. Yeah, I mean, I think that basically this idea that has sort of been you know underlying all of these attacks is that, and there's even been TV commercials that have sort of laid out this point that he's this like deep state actor, right? That he's like trying to take down the Trump administration and. If you look at his history, it's just so far afield from the facts. Um, I mean, this is a guy who is a Republican. I mean, so I went back and I – college newspaper archives can be a valuable tool. I went back and found a letter to the editor he wrote in 1984 <clears throat> uh, right ahead of the um, – when he – I guess he was probably a sophomore, maybe a – yeah, maybe a junior. Um, and he uh, wrote a letter to the editor about like this editorial that was in the paper that was basically disapp- expressing disappointment that Reagan was polling so well at Penn at the time. Um, and he was very upset about that and, you know, said, like, you know, this is basically started attacking them as, a, you know, the liberal media, the elites and the I think he used the phrase Ivy Towers um, and said that, you know, he was proud of the fact that Penn was more like the rest of America than um, some of the other Ivies and was saying, um, you know, that basically this is you'll see on Tuesday. Right. Like, you'll see what happens. You know, obviously, everyone knows it happened in 1984. Um, so. I think that, like, the idea that he is sort of this, you know, closet liberal who's, like, you know, is just snuck in there, it's just so crazy because this was the man who, again, Donald Trump nominated to take over the number two critical position within the Justice Department. So it really says something about his vet- his own personal vetting skill, or, you know, he didn't really know him, but his, his team's vetting skills, um, if somehow this closet liberal determined to take down Trump, got got through. I mean— let me just throw out an alternative scenario here is that Rod Rosenstein has some integrity and is not just going to like, you know, obey whatever necessarily the Trump administration says as much as you as people outside might criticize him. And he came under a lot of criticism for that letter he wrote about Comey that basically gave yeah. the president an opportunity <clears throat> or the, the, the reasoning, the supposed reasoning to fire Comey. And, and why don't we remind people what Rosenstein said in that letter mm-hmm. about the that, that was like the first of like 15 explanations we've now yeah. heard for Comey. But that was the official, I mean, that was what they were supposed to go with until, right. until Trump, basically this letter said that the um, that Comey mishandled the Clinton investigation and that he like stepped outside of his his role by going to that press conference, by, you know, declaring basically the, laying out the details of the investigation. He said that that should have been left to the Justice Department to make that decision. Um, the FBI was just supposed to make their recommendation. This wasn't supposed to be this big public matter. So basically going to, like, being unfair to Clinton was the underlying reasoning here, which I think is just also shocking that this is like, this sometimes get, gets buried. Um, Comey, the initial explanation was Comey was fired because the investigation into Hillary Clinton was not fair to Hillary Clinton. Correct. That was explanation number one out of what has been an <laughs> incredibly evolving uh, story over the last, uh, about last year at this point now. Yeah. I mean, that was the excuse, which, I mean, also has to be tough for Trump to personally for his own ego's sake tough to swallow like yeah i'm firing he has to say it's like about something else. i mean it probably is also about something else but 
I mean, it is about something else, but he, it's tough for him to be able to like say like, yeah, he was like, the reason I'm firing Comey is he was too tough on Clinton when the entire basis of his campaign is that like the FBI was too easy on. Well, and you could see in that, you know, then the story continued to evolve as Trump went and did the Lester Holt interview. Mm -hmm. I mean, if as implausible an explanation as that was, Mm -hmm. if Trump could have simply stuck to that story, Mm -hmm. uh, he might be better off than where he is, but you could even tell he physically could not tell that story and it doesn't work well when he's doing his campaign rallies i've said this from the very very beginning to pull off a successful cover-up you have to be willing to do things that you don't want to do necessarily (laughs) and that just doesn't square with who donald trump is no not at all i just can't imagine like trump going up and being like you know well there are these detailed rules within the justice (laughs) department that you're supposed to obey in terms of the investigation and that in retrospect is despite what i said on the campaign trail (laughs) in retrospect very unfair. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I didn't get here on my own. Right. Yeah. Like, right, the, the person right. who spent his entire campaign arguing uh, lock her up right. is suddenly now going to be the principal defender of <laughs> of, of rights. And uh, um, well, look, um, I, I this is Chris Liu. Uh, I am guest hosting for Bill Press. Uh, we have been joined by Ryan Riley, the senior justice reporter for HuffPost. I hope you will follow him and Ryan J. Riley. Uh, we've um, Anything breaking that you you want to do with Giuliani right now and tell me something that uh, <laughs> that I didn't hear about uh, already? Man, uh, I don't think so. not that I can you know I don't All know. Right. I, I think it's probably the day is young. Yeah, it's, the day is young. I'm sure there'll be something that'll pop up, but you know, based on how that all played out, I'm gonna have to say yeah. no. For okay. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Sure, thanks. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone from Washington, D.C. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill Press on a beautiful Friday morning, a warm Friday morning. I'm sorry, I just keep saying it's 90 degrees outside. I just can't understand what that is. Uh, We are going to be joined uh, in a moment by former Congressman Glenn Nye, who is now the president and CEO of the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, uh, a wonderful think tank that I know well. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at chrislu 44 uh, I hope you will follow the show at BP Show on Twitter. And you can also subscribe on YouTube. Just look for The Bill Press Show. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, so you mentioned in the last hour how this is sort of... I mean, there have been a lot of things going on this week. One of them has been Kanye West. Kanye West has been uh, tying himself to Donald Trump all week. He said some very controversial statements. 
saying that slavery was a choice. Uh, Kanye went on Twitter and tried to walk it back a little bit, but he didn't do a very good job of it. In fact, yesterday uh, in Detroit, Michigan, on 105.1, the morning bounce, the hosts of the show said they will no longer be playing the music (laughs) of Kanye West. They said Kanye West has gone too far uh, and host Shay Shay at 105.1, the morning bounce said, quote, we don't want to hear Kanye's music. We don't want to play Kanye on our show. We don't want to talk about Kanye anymore. So we're taking a stand and we aren't playing his music anymore. We are just refusing to give him a platform. Now, by the way, this isn't just Kanye West music. This will include tracks that Conway has Kanye has produced or music that he has been featured in as well. So, it's you know, it's funny. We, not good. we were just talking about the interesting dynamic in the Kellyanne Conway household with her husband tweeting. I don't know what happens in the Kanye <laughs> Kim Kardashian household. Yeah, you got two high profile uh, uh, tweeters and, and social media personalities. What happened? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how one manages that. Yeah, no. And you know what? I don't want to know. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't really want to know. Uh, we mentioned this last hour as well. Just a little tease. Here we are. Uh, the Kilauea volcano has erupted in Hawaii, leading to mandatory evacuations of nearby homes. Now, there is a subdivision uh, close to the volcano that has uh, been affected already. It's called the Leilani Estates. It's a subdivision uh, in what's a, an area known as the Lower East Rift Zone of the Kilauea volcano. Uh, shortly before 5 p.m. local time, lava was confirmed at the surface at the eastern end of the subdivision, according to the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. Uh, so they are saying if you are in the path of this, if you're in that area, you need to get away. You need to get out. These these are no joke These when, these, when this happens. There are about 1,700 people that have been affected already. And, of course, if it gets bigger, there will be more. Yeah, I, I, we were just talking about this. I was uh, I was in Hawaii on vacation a couple months ago, and I was in Kauai, uh, which had two feet of rain within two-day period. It washed out a good chunk of that island, and now we have this on the big island. It's, uh, it's a tough time. But that being said, it's still Hawaii, which is a pretty great place yeah, to hang out. Yeah, exactly. And they apparently say there's not a great harm, and they've done some really amazing work in, in tracking volcanoes, and there have been a series of earthquakes that have given them uh, a little bit of advance warning, and yeah. so I guess you need lava shoes or whatever one wears during that time. Yeah, exactly. And one final story. We go to Indianapolis yesterday where an armored car carrying lots of money had a problem yesterday. The back doors of a Brinks armored truck swung open, and hundreds of thousands of dollars flew out. Wow. $600,000 flew across the interstate uh, is what it was originally reported as losing. Of course, people stopped to pick up some of the money. Sounds like the scene from a movie. Exactly. Well, you know what? That's exactly what somebody said. They said this looked like the scene from a movie. And the police have said, if you did pick up any cash off of the interstate or nearby uh, the interstate, please return it. So if you were driving near Interstate (laughs) 70 in Indianapolis (laughs) yesterday and you walked away with a couple of hundred bucks in your pocket, uh, the police would like to have a word with you. Just please, just just take it back. That's all they're asking. Somebody's prayers were answered that day. (laughs) This is the Bill Press Show. 
Good morning, everyone. It is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill. Uh, my, I, I've been very open. It's my second time guest hosting. Uh, I didn't suck the first time, or I guess I didn't suck, or they really just needed a guest host. Uh, and so I'm here this morning again. Uh, real excited for our next guest, uh, Glenn Nye. Glenn is the president and CEO of the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, uh, which is a wonderful think tank in Washington uh, that applies the lessons of history to current challenges. Uh, and in the spirit of full uh, disclosure, I was a senior fellow there about five years ago, and it's great to have Glenn in studio. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. Great to be with you, Chris. Uh, Glenn, I should also mention, was uh, a member of Congress from the 2nd Congressional uh, District in Virginia from 2009 to 2011. He has a long history of public service uh, as a Foreign Service officer, not only at the State Department, uh, but also at USAID. Um Glenn, before we dive into the, the, the new initiative that you all are uh, launching or have launched, talk a little bit about what the center, uh, the history of the center and, and, and what its aims are. Sure. Well, the center was founded 50 years ago to be a sort of central location for studying presidential decision making. And it was supposed to, it was actually inspired by uh, a thought that President Eisenhower had that there ought to be a place where you can track presidential decision making so future presidents can have an easier time and have a, a, an easy place to go and get lessons learned. We grew over time to include a mandate to study also congressional decision making, you know, under the realization that it's hard to understand presidential decision making if you don't also look at the workings of the Congress. And uh, so we, we do spend ser a serious amount of time still on that uh, pursuit of studying kind of the way that the president approaches decision-making, the way Congress internally functions. But we've also developed over a number of years kind of a related mandate, which is to try to promote bipartisan cooperation and better functioning of our government, uh, governing institutions in Washington. And as you know, it's a very tough time uh, for that mission set. Uh, but we're finding because of a confluence of events, and, and maybe it's the fact that political dysfunction has now gotten so bad that we've approached rock bottom here, and a lot of people are starting to say, look, there's got to be a better way. And even if it's not about a particular candidate or a particular politician, the system's not clearly not functioning the way that it is supposed to. When you have the kind of gridlock that you see on Capitol Hill, and look, there's always going to be some polarization. We get that. That's part of the process. There's always going to be some sort of, you know, combat. But we're trying to find ways, and our ambition is to try to promote what we call effective governance, which is essentially, can Congress do just well enough? Can they cooperate just enough to do the basics? Can they pass yeah. a budget that doesn't blow up the <clears throat> deficit? Can they stop threatening to shut the government down every few months? I mean, come <laughs> on. The average American voter looks at this and says, this is nuts. This is not the way you run a country, uh, especially one that's a, that's the you know the leading democracy in the world, right. and it's just there's got to be a better way. Uh, hopefully, that was a little bit of a teaser for all of you. Uh, I'm here with Glenn Nye, who is the president and CEO of the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. You can follow Glenn at uh, Twitter at Glenn Nye. You can also follow the center at CSPC underscore DC. So, uh, you all are embarking on a new initiative on civility, and you laid the groundwork for this in a piece. And I recommend that folks read the piece that Glenn wrote in The Hill last October. Let me just read a paragraph of that. Uh, Glenn writes, uh, the sad deterioration in our civic culture has been underway for some time. It is exacerbated when political parties seek short-term gain, uh, encourage, sh seeking short-term gain, uh, encourage political tribalism. 
It is advanced by self-serving media figures bent on stoking conflict and controversy at every opportunity. It inevitably results when national figures adopt coarse language and uncompromising positions that appeal to niche groups of hardened fans. So you've begun this initiative. Um, it is uh, co-chaired by uh, two former congressmen, yep. uh, Jason Altmaier, Democrat, and Tom Davis, a Republican. Talk about what you hope to accomplish at the end of this. Sure. Well, the commission, <clears throat> excuse me, we formed the commission because we are a group of people who on our free time wear our partisan hats. You know, we're Democrats, we're Republicans. We, we you know, we we support our teams. But we also realize there's there's more to it. Uh, you know, whether your team wins this this competition or the other team wins this one, we all want to see some basic functioning of government happen in, in the interim, in between election time. And so we decided that you know, there were obviously some systemic challenges, like the one, some of the ones you just read from my op-ed, um, that deserve a lot of attention. And they don't usually get <clears throat> as much media attention as, um, you know, the, the, the exciting stories of the day. And we understand why. But we decided to form this commission because we wanted to do two things. And one is we wanted people, Americans, to recognize that the situation is not hopeless. There are things happening. There are reform groups out there, groups um, that are led by people that think the way we do about the system working better and are fighting the good fight every day. You don't hear much about them. It's hard for them to break through. And, and of course, like we get it. it. You know, when you're talking about a media environment that's covering President Trump, it's tough to break through yeah. the you know the day to day. The president always will grab the headline, but we did want to take you know our best efforts with this group to try to break through and get into the national conversation, a focus on why things are difficult, why there's dysfunction in Congress, and it's not just that they're all bad people, they're all scoundrels up there, right? They have an incentive structure that pushes them to do the things they do and and not find cooperation. So we're looking for ways to unwind that. So again. One of the goals is to try to get into the narrative, a conversation about why those things are, and talk a little bit about the groups that are doing good work to try to fix that so we can kind of create a roadmap back. What we call it is a roadmap to hope, because what we found, honestly, to me, is most troubling. And we you look at the figures, they're, they're all, all the data is there, and, and they've just gotten worse and worse. This isn't a new phenomenon. We recognize that. But when <clears throat> confidence in Congress is around 10%, and to borrow a quote, that's like friends and family level of confidence, right? And no wonder when they keep shutting down every few months um, the government. When confidence is that low and when you have people saying things like, you know, almost 40 percent of Americans recently said that they had a low level of uh, confidence in the American democratic system. To me, that's shocking. That says people are starting to lose faith that we'll ever get out of this. And I don't believe we'll never get out of this. I think there is there are pathways to fixing this. They're not easy. And again, there's like there's no silver bullet. There's no one solution here that will fix everything. Simply, there's a lot of work to be done. But the work has started. There is some momentum being built. And we just wanted to tell the story um, to give people a sense of hope and try to get people to reengage um, in the political system again. So the, and I, I planned the conversation this way. So we've bookended it. So after you, we have somebody from the Brennan Center coming to talk about a new initiative, bipartisan initiative they're kicking off as well, as to how we shore up democratic norms, things that we mm -hmm. think presidents, Congress should follow that we've now found out really are norms and not laws. But let me push you on this, because, you know, when you laid out this initiative, you highlighted a couple of things, partisan gerrymandering, money in politics, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the media landscape. I mean, it's it, 
yes, we can agree that we should move away from partisan gerrymandering. It's certainly an issue that is before the Supreme Court. We could certainly talk about money and politics. That's an issue that the Supreme Court did resolve in Citizens United. So are your recommendations, hey, we should revisit these things, or there are things we can do other than going through Supreme Court action? Yeah, I mean, it, look, let's be very honest. Some of our recommended actions are harder than others, like you suggested, and the money and politics we think is important. It's tough. Um, but I think it's important that we continue to try to chip away at these things. And, and one of the main reasons is we feel troubled by the lack of faith, the loss of faith on the part of a lot of Americans, again, that this system can be fixed. And, and I understand why 65% of Americans in a recent poll said they feel like the system is rigged. A lot of that's got to be due to the fact that they see this outsized role for money in politics. Yes, the Supreme Court has made some rulings that make it hard to you know, pass a law to fix this. And yet... That doesn't mean we should give up. I think there's probably room for some uh, some new rules connected to, like, for instance, restricting the amount of money that uh, lobbyists can give to a candidate's campaign while they're lobbying them on a particular issue. We've got to find some way to start rebuilding this trust and something that the American people can see and say, that's new, that's different, that, you know, it's one step towards a larger goal, but we're but they get us. They they're hearing us. They understand why we're saying the system is rigged. We have to recognize why a lot of people have kind of switched off from the political process. And one of the one of the challenges that drives dysfunction in Congress, look, the country is polarized, but Congress is more polarized than the country at large is. But but what the incentive structure that leads into congressional behavior comes from the fact that we have extremely low turnout in elections very low turnout in primary elections, and you end up with members being, you know, very worried about a sort of 9% of the electorate deciding who gets to run in the elections. And those tend to be the 9% uh, that want to see people stick to their guns always. And sticking to your guns on principle is great a lot of the time. But you, at some point, you got to make a deal on a budget, right? You got to sit down with some numbers and you have to make some compromises Otherwise, the cost is you destroy the functioning of the, of the government system. So we've got to find this balance. And I think that the, the point of our group is to try to chip away at this, make, get some momentum, let people know about it. So, again, we create this sense that it's worth the average American citizen getting reengaged in this process again. So, Glenn, you're looking at this now from an outsider running a think tank, but you also have a perspective as a former member of Congress who I know ran two very difficult races, uh, who's time in Congress coincided with the rise of the Tea Party. And so yeah. at some level, you can say, you know, people aren't engaged. Well, the Tea Party, they were engaged and they came out. They were single issue voters, but they came out and voted uh, in 2010. And, you know, the tactics now of the uh, the tactics of the Tea Party have now been followed by people on the left and storming town halls. How, how does your time in Congress shape the work you're doing right now? And let me just follow on to that. Is this incivility, is this polarization, um, constituents mirroring their leaders, or it's the other way around? I think to a large extent it's leaders mirroring constituents, but it's a subset of constituents. And so, and look, the people that are most active in politics have every right to be active and be out there. That's how our democratic system is meant to work. But it's also meant to include the, a, a broader set of voices. And so what we're trying to do is is look at the system and say, are there ways that over time this system has been skewed to represent particular voices over others? And are those voices that are being represented reflective of 
sort of, you know, of the broad country, of the mix and the diversity of, of points of view in the country? Or do they tend to speak to very specific ways of looking at politics? And again, it's not about positions on issues. People can have very different positions on issues. But at the end of the day, did we give too much power through a skewing of the system to people who won't allow even the basic compromises necessary to just keep the lights on and the government from shutting down constantly, which, again, destroys faith? Yeah. And so that's what we're looking at. You know, I know uh, Tom Davis has written about this, and I think he's gone back and looked at the the early 1980s and the overlap in ideology between um, uh, House Republicans and House Democrats. And there were, you know, 100 some members that overlapped. And I think that is probably not none at this point right, right now but you saw this i mean you know you you, you had to cut uh, cast some very difficult votes um as a centrist democrat uh in that 2009 2010 period of time uh and and there aren't a lot of people there in congress like you anymore on in, on either side of the aisle right uh, and that is a trend that has been going on for about 20 years and you know some of it is just these constant wave elections that we've had they tend to wipe out this, this more centrist people because those people represent districts which are the most easy for the other party to win. So there's just kind of like a natural systemic thing. And I get it. Like if you're a political party, uh, if you're responsible for a political party for getting the majority, you're going to target the seats naturally that are the closest to the center because they're the easiest for you to flip with the smallest amount of resource. But the effect of that strategy, of the strategy which is designed to just win the next election— the effect of that strategy is you destroy the ability of members to come together and make the compromises necessary to do the basics. And again, I want to be clear, like our ambition is not that the Congress figure out a way to all get along on every issue. That's just not part of our politics, and that's okay. But just to do the basics of you know, passing the budget and also operating with the kind of language that just avoids using enemy kind of terms to describe somebody who disagrees with you on issues— that's what we're looking for, because when you get that kind of contemptuous language as the norm of the day, it's destructive to the process. And when Americans turn on their TVs and they see politicians talking like that, it turns them off and it, and it reduces this faith. And again, I think that's why you're seeing these numbers are, are terribly high yeah. in loss of faith in the democratic system. And that's not healthy for the country. We can't be strong as a country if we can't figure out a way to do the basics well. You know, I've always wondered what it is like when members of Congress are actually behind closed doors. There's this idea that, you know, we could beat the crap out of each other publicly, but then we can, you know, behind closed doors, we could find a way to 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 work on issues together. You know, there's also this idea that members just don't have that time anymore, given the schedules and traveling back to the district. They don't have the um, evening social hour kind of uh, engagements, the, the informal ones that are not based on fundraising that people used to have. Uh, what is that dynamic like with yeah. members of Congress on the other side of the aisle? Uh, I've, it's been said many times that congressional travel, when you have to take a bipartisan trip somewhere, is the best way to kind of create the the uh, the basis for civility. Because you, uh, I went on a few different congressional delegations to mostly to conflict zones. I represented um, Hampton Roads, Virginia, which is a military area. So I spent most of my travel in Iraq and Afghanistan. But when you go on those trips with members of the other party, you sit down, you have hours and hours on planes to talk. You do get to know each other a little bit better. And it helps. It makes it easier. If, For instance, if I have an idea that's going to take bipartisan support, I immediately have a couple of friends on the other side of the aisle that I know personally that I can say, hey, look, is there? A, we can start talking at least, right? Is there a way we could find some enough common ground to get something? Could you find 
five other Republicans that would agree with this if I found five Democrats. You have the beginning of a conversation. But what it, it doesn't really defeat the challenge of, like you suggested, when you go on TV, people go on TV, they're talking to the likely voter. And who are the, the likely voters are in many districts, they're really concerned about the primary voter. And again, it's that sort of nine to 10 percent of their electorate that is the least likely to support compromise that are showing up every single time. And the reason that's become more problematic over time is that gerrymandering has, has been part of this. It's a, it's a problem. Parties have drawn the districts now to be so strongly one party or the other that the general election becomes uncompetitive and you're really only concerned about a really low turnout primary. And again, that, that creates a disconnect from what most people in a district would want to see their, their member of Congress do and how they actually act. And again, so that goes back to the incentive thing. I think mm-hmm. even without changing any member of Congress, if you just change the incentive structures, if you had a little bit more competition in the general, if you had an open primary system where more people could compete, where you had to speak to a larger set of voters, you'd see the behavior in Congress change right away. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Glenn Nye, who's the president and CEO of the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. You can follow Glenn at uh, Glenn Nye. You can also follow the center at uh, CSPC underscore DC. Uh, I am Chris Liu. I'm guest hosting. You can follow me on Chris Liu 44. Um, I've just given you this long, uh, 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 I've just shilled for all of our social media, so it's hard for me not to talk about social media. Mm. Your your time in Congress really kind of precedes kind of this um, hyper amping up of social media. Um, and it's frankly, you know, look, I mean, you, you, you just mentioned, you know, you go on cable TV, you're playing to a certain audience. Uh, we're at 280 characters on Twitter. It's hard to be subtle. It's hard to be nuanced. People don't retweet you when you're subtle and nuanced. Mm. Um, what is the effect of social media? And, and I've got to ask you, like, what is the effect of the president's social media on this. And I understand we're trying to do this in a bipartisan way uh, or a nonpartisan way. Um, but the president certainly is the impetus for a lot of this, I have yeah. to imagine. Look, uh, there's there's no question, I think, that a lot of people have been turned off by the president's approach here. So if we're looking at civility and we're reading the president's tweets, they're usually not the strongest example of civil language that accepts that the other side's got a legitimate point of view, right? And so that's not very helpful. But you're right. You're right to raise social media as a question. And, and it's not just social media. It's like the polarization of Americans into media columns. Right. Has it, that's existed for a long time. It's gotten more challenging. And one of the reasons is because um, social media just makes it so easy to subdivide those groups even in even tighter areas. It also allows for and this is something we saw recently Um, You know, it came to head with the Zuckerberg testimony, but it's not just about Facebook, but the issues really kind of, I think, focused on this. It allows for advertising, which is not really clear where it's coming from. It allows for sort of algorithmic determination of what stories an individual person sees. And so somebody who already was likely to, to gravitate towards a certain type of news story because they feel strongly about politics now just gets inundated with stories not just that fit that sort of general category, but that are more and more and more salacious because the algorithms are designed mm-hmm. to promote clicks, right? And so that's how the, the business upside of, it, of social media works. That's led to some really bad outcomes. You just get not just polarization, but this really strong stratification of news sources. Now you're entering a debate. You're asking members of Congress to have a civil debate with each other when their constituents who are living in completely different news worlds are communicating them to act a certain way and, and want them to say certain things. 
I understand, I think, sometimes why the president sends some of the tweets he sends. I don't understand some of them, but some of them, it seems like he does have a grasp on an audience that he's reaching. I just think it's a challenge when we're trying to promote civility and just sort of set like a red line. Can we agree not to step past a red line? What's a red line? Maybe a red line is we just agree not to use language that assigns words like enemy to our political opponents. Like, let us disagree strongly with them on issues, but recognize also that they're patriots and that they want the country to prosper. And that seems to be something that's really hard these days, but it, it shouldn't be. And you've seen this play out. Um, there's, a, I guess it's a Republican congressional candidate in Wisconsin who has questioned Democrats who are veterans or how a veteran could be a Democrat. Um, we've got this, and we'll play this in the next half hour. we got this amazing ad from Don Blankenship, who is running for the U.S. Senate in West Virginia, who is attacking Mitch McConnell, uh, Mitch McConnell's family. I mean, it, it, and this this is playing to some people. Again, I don't know about the Don Blankenship ad, but some political consultant, some str- there was some strategy behind this that people mm. think the more incendiary you are in your rhetoric, it gets people's attention. And to be fair, uh, the president gets people's attention. He has a way of driving the new cycle with his tweets. Absolutely. And the more outrageous he is, the more attention he gets. Look, when I was in office, I was in the House chamber when President Obama was giving a State of the Union address and a member of Congress interrupted the president yes. speaking to the country and called him a liar. Right. And you would have thought, that's it. This person's on his way out of office, right? They'll, his voters will throw him out. That's not acceptable behavior. But what actually happened? He raised like a million dollars yeah. within two days online in small contributions. And that's a really powerful but bad message that says, look, let's find – if I find ways to be outrageous, you know, I'll get the attention I need to raise money and it'll help my campaign – that it's troubling, right? And so you you can understand if someone's trying to win a race and they look at how do voters respond, what do I need to do to get the attention to win this race? And you look at the the, the examples from some of the more recent elections; they're not all great. People used to ask me all the time when I was in office, "When are politicians in Washington act more like statesmen?" And my response was, "When the voters demand this, they will do it." And so I think again, it comes back to. What does our commission think is yeah is is the right outcome here? And part of it is trying to empower those voters who are there but don't participate as strong as often as they ought to to participate more. And I think honestly that would largely solve the problem. That's hard. It's hard to get people who aren't sort of agitated about a particular candidate or a particular issue to show up and vote. But if we made it easier through electoral system reform and you know, if we if we ra- keep raising the the, you know, the alarm, I think we, we might be able to have some success there. And again, I want to stress the point that this is hard. There's no one answer that will completely solve this, but it's not hopeless. And there are a lot of great groups that have gone out. This isn't something we're necessarily going to solve by scolding members of Congress to just be more bipartisan and be better. You got to look at the incentives. But there are groups that are that are out there going state by state and fighting for referenda to change some of these rules to change finance rules to defeat gerrymandering. There's groups like Represent Us uh, that are out, and I think they've got a ballot initiative in Ohio coming up this week. Mm -hmm. That's something we're watching very closely. Groups here like Issue One working on finance reform. Um, There are groups like the National Institute for Civil Dialogue that are creating spaces for people who want to talk about issues more Mm -hmm. civilly. And there's interest out there, and I think it's growing strongly right now. So we're trying to play a role to map these groups and kind of galvanize support for people who are actually doing things that will I think, help unwind this really tough knot. Uh, Glenn, we've got about a minute left. Um, 
Is there a process, is there a way for the public to provide their ideas, their feedback to all of you? Yeah, so, I mean, you gave out our Twitter handle. We'd love to have people comment there. And it's it's helpful for us to get that kind of feedback. And then, again, we're happy to share information about more sort of grassroots-oriented groups that are going state by state. And people may want to know, hey, in my state, is there something I can join? I think Represent Us on their yeah. website's got a map. And you can just click on your state and say, hey, is there something happening in my state to try to flip to nonpartisan district drawing or, or better finance laws? I'd like to add my voice to that. And so we would be happy to help people get connected to some of those groups. Is there a proposed time frame for when the final report or recommendations will be released? I think we'd like to come out and have something preliminary before this election. That's great. Sort of let people have a chance to start digesting this. And then, of course, we're going to learn a lot, you know, during this election time frame and we'll revise it. So by the end of the year, looking back on November, we'll be able to see, oh, hey, are the trends getting better? Are there things happening that are starting to bend this curve? <laughs> Are they getting worse? Have we kind of stemmed the bleeding and are we kind of steady state? Um, and I think what we'll find is there's actually a lot of passion and energy out there uh, to change this and fix this. It's just not well directed right. yet. And so we're hoping to kind of channel all that. Well, if you've just been joining us, that was Glenn Nye, the president and CEO of the Center for the Study of the Presidency uh, in Congress. He's been discussing a new initiative that they are kicking off uh, on civility and politics that's co-chaired by uh, former Democratic Congressman uh, Jason Altmaier uh, and former Republican Congressman uh, Tom Davis. We uh, thank you for being here. We wish you well in this effort. Please thank you. Uh, follow Glenn, uh, uh, Glenn Nye on Twitter and the center at CSPC underscore DC. We'll be back in a couple of months. Live video, Phil's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting on a beautiful Friday morning. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. You can also follow the show at BP Show and also subscribe on YouTube. Uh, just look for the Bill Press Show. And before we jump into our next guest, let me flip it over to Peter to hear what people are talking about on social media. Yes, indeed. Speaking of social media, as you mentioned, we are on Twitter at BP Show. I have to mention, first of all, somebody that was listening to the show has created... A fake, a fake Twitter account. Faith Initiative. All about Donald Trump's Faith Initiative, which we said he probably just thought that was a porn star that he wanted to have an affair with, a porn star by the name of Faith Initiative. Somebody has created the Twitter account Faith Initiative, which I, I really applaud them for doing that. Uh, okay, Peter, so, we didn't trademark that before. We just threw it out there. Yeah, you know what? It's 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 for the people. Yeah, wait, that's it's like Wu Tang. It's for the kids. Uh, okay, so a couple of different uh, comments that we got on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. Uh, first of all, Joey Olivia weighing in saying, "I think I just heard Jesus laughing about that faith program that Donald Trump said he was going to put into place." Uh, uh, Connie Scanlon weighing in on Twitter again at BP show. Uh, we had the story about how Twitter said that all 330 some million of its users need to change the password because of, uh, of, of some shaky, uh, uh, data storage on their part. Uh, Connie says, thanks for the heads up. I've changed my password. Yes, I would, I would suggest everybody change their Twitter password. Uh, KG says, Mike Pence is nothing more than a blasphemer. When we hmm. talk about how he says he's Donald Trump has done so much for people of faith. And Phil says we should just start calling Scott Pruitt Swamp Thing <laughs> because he clearly is the leader of the swamp. So not only can you reach us on Twitter at BP Show, you can also find us in YouTube at the chat room, youtube.com slash 
The Bill Press Show. Uh, Louis says Giuliani is a hack lawyer that wanted to be attorney general. Trump will regret bringing him back now. Oops. <laughs> uh, and Miriam says Trump's team's questions sound exactly like students following the outline of their notes for the final exam. <laughs> Trump's team is following all the media discussions and creating their own final that's uh, Mim, actually. So thank you, Mim. We appreciate your comments. Find us on Twitter at BP Show. Find us in the chat room, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And find us on Facebook. Just look for The Bill Press Show. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, I am joined by a uh, special guest, uh, Rudy Mirbani. Uh, Rudy is not only, I, I, I earlier was about to say former friend. I meant current friend, former colleague, uh, although who knows after we finish this interview. Uh, Rudy had a lot of jobs in the Obama administration. I didn't think I fully appreciated this until I went through his re resume. So his final job was as assistant to the president, director of the uh, office of uh, the presidential personnel office. He served in other roles, including as the general counsel of the Peace Corps. He was associate White House counsel. He was a senior policy advisor at HUD, where he helped set up the Hurricane uh, Sandy Task Force. He is now C uh, Spitzer Fellow and senior counsel at the Brenter the guy marble mouth this morning, senior counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice. You can follow Rudy at Rudy Mirbani. That's R U D Y M E H R B A N I or at Brennan Center as well. Rudy, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here and to see you. I, you look good behind the microphone. I'd prefer you running an agency, though. Yeah, you know, I think we all prefer being back in government. But you know, <laughs> during this interim period of time, we all have to like make a living somehow. So it's uh, that's right. It's, it's great being here. Well, look, um, uh, Peter just talked about Pruitt. Uh, you said to me, "Hey, I haven't checked the news this morning," and every day, literally, there's another. Scott Pruitt's story, and I see you shaking your head. Uh, you ran the Office of Presidential Personnel, uh, which is the office that um, not only um, identifies, vets, selects, helps nominations, appointees get through the process. What do you think about when you see what literally is a daily litany of uh, of poor vetting, poor selection, lack of ethics? I mean, how do you, what do you think? Uh, I mean, frankly, it's really sad. Uh, I think that when you have someone who is in office uh, and who is running the presidential personnel office in a way that increases cynicism around government uh, by not selecting the most qualified, the most ethical folks to be in these incredible positions of trust, that it's really devastating for uh, Americans' faith generally in government. Uh, and that's what I feel like... Um, is most concerning is that cynicism and lack of faith in government is something that we struggled with when we were in office. And that's only now being exacerbated by some of the things that we're seeing uh, come out of the Trump White House and specifically the presidential personnel office. And that's going to be really hard to recover from. Uh, and it's something that uh, I think about in the work that I'm doing at the Brennan Center and uh, in thinking about what I'm going to do in the future, quite frankly. So we talk a lot about we use the word vetting, which is not a word that I think people outside of government really understand. What does it mean to vet somebody for a job? So uh, this may might sound obvious, uh, but when you're in the presidential personnel office, your job is to find the right person for the job. Uh, what might not be as obvious, however, is the ways in which you identify the right people. 
So in addition to the typical HR process, interviewing, reviewing resumes, in government, we have the good fortune of having all of these other tools at our disposal to make sure that the people who we select for the job is uh, that they're the right people for the job. So one of the things that we would put emphasis on is not just the specific qualifications that someone would have and the skills that they would bring to the table and how they would be distinct from other people, but do they share the values that were most important to the president? And that's harder to define, but we would utilize these tools to determine whether or not the people that we were looking at really shared those values. And so we would look at the background investigations that the FBI would complete. We would look at the ethics uh, reviews that the Office of Government Ethics and that the folks up on the Hill would complete, the financial disclosures. And then we would talk to the candidates. We would have conversations with them to figure out why they want these jobs. What is it that they're going to focus on? What are their priorities going to be? And how are they going to manage the people that they have to lead at their agencies? Uh, So when you're not doing the vetting work that goes into the selection prior to announcing someone's nomination for an important position, to me, that displays a lack of seriousness around uh, the personnel process. And Quite frankly, I guess we shouldn't be surprised about this because personnel and the process involved is one of the more mundane aspects of government. So when you have a president who has shown himself to really not respect the purposes of government and how it helps improve the lives of American citizens, then uh, of course uh, he's not going to respect some of these mundane aspects around personnel. But I mean, Chris, could you imagine what would have happened if President Obama had nominated some of these folks that we see President Trump bringing up uh, uh, to the Hill without vetting them, without uh, having their background investigations and their ethics reviews completed? I mean, Republicans wouldn't have stood for it. They wouldn't have moved forward with these nominees. But uh, uh, Trump is getting, I think, uh, a a different uh, treatment and he's being held to a different standard. If you're just joining us, this is Chris Luke uh, sitting in for Bill Press today. Uh, We are joined by Rudy Mervani. Rudy, um, he has a couple different hats. We're right now uh, talking with him in his role as the former uh, director of the presidential personnel office, I should have said, during the Obama administration, because we're talking about the contrast between the Obama approach and the Trump approach. And you've used a word a couple of times. You've talked about the nomination, the vetting process is being mundane. And I think that's important because I think when people do it well, uh, it's a lot of work. It's not glamorous. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of people don't make it through the process. But you you don't get the credit for doing it well. And you've seen over the last 15 months what happens when you don't take it seriously. Uh, We've Rudy and I have had this conversation through Twitter about one of the questions that was often asked um, at the end of vetting interviews, and I had this when I was nominated to be the Deputy Secretary of Labor, it's kind of this catch-all question. Uh, has there anything you have not disclosed that would either embarrass you or embarrass the president, in that case, President Obama? And I often wonder whether the Trump folks ask the question or they do ask the question and nothing really would embarrass this president. I And again, because you see some of the stories that have come out and you're like, how could you have missed this? And even if you had seen this, why 
didn't this disqualify people? Yeah, one of the things that motivated me when I was uh, one of the jobs I had in the Obama administration was leading the team of attorneys who did this vetting work. It's really uh, hard work. It, it, it is incredibly hard work, and one of the things I'm I'm proudest of uh, is that while I was leading that team, that there were no personnel scandals that took place, which is incredibly important because as we've seen. Uh, if a, if something pops up during this process, it could be incredibly distracting from the president's agenda, and it can be personally embarrassing, not just for the president, but also for the nominee that you're putting forward. Uh, and look, th- the reason why we asked that catch-all question at the end is because this stuff mattered to President Obama. I remember that in one of the first jobs I had in the Obama administration, it was a junior, relatively junior position as a deputy associate counsel for personnel. And I remember being in one of these vetting meetings and we were grappling with what was, especially by today's standards, a relatively minor flag, but the flag meaning it was a vetting <clears throat> issue, uh, but the position was was pretty significant. And so uh, we were deliberating, going around in circles, and then uh, we left the meeting without any conclusion. And the next day, uh, Jim Messina, who was the deputy chief of staff at the time, came up to me and said, you know, I talked to the president and the president said that this issue matters and he doesn't want to move forward uh, because of it. And that stayed with me yeah. because it meant that the things that we're doing are important to the person who's leading the ship, to the captain of the ship, to the person who's in, who's in charge. And leadership matters. Character matters. And the standard, if that if that's not set at the top, as you're seeing with a lot of these ethics issues, I believe, uh, it really filters down throughout the White House staff, throughout the rest of government, uh, and uh, it, it makes it harder for government to do its job effectively. Well, and I want to I focus on that. Uh, you had the fortune not only working in the White House, you worked at HUD, you worked at the Peace Corps. You saw the important work that political appointees can do. Uh, and, you know, I suppose it is a blessing at this point that there are so many open positions in the Trump administration because they can't seem to find the right people. Uh, but but that lack of political leadership creates a void that makes it hard to actually do the work on behalf of the American people. That's right. And you know that better than anyone as well, having served in the leadership positions that you served in. But the career staff at the agencies, I mean, they're incredibly talented and they don't get enough credit. Uh, And that's one of the things that um, I'm hoping uh, will change, partly through the work we're doing at the Brennan Center uh, in uh, holding up uh, the great work that a lot of uh, the career civil servants do. But if you don't have the right people at the helm uh, to lead the career staff, uh, you know, you're not going to... Uh, be able to move a president's agenda forward. I mean, one of the things that I think isn't talked about enough, and I and I do think this is true, that one of the greatest determining factors of whether a president can successfully implement their agenda is uh, by uh, uh, making sure that they have the right people in place. Because the work of government primarily takes place at the agencies. And if you don't have the right people in place to lead the agencies, to not only do the work that they consider to be routine, but also to pivot and to focus on the policy issues the president wants to focus on, then you're not going to succeed. Uh, And I think that we're seeing that uh, in a lot of different places right now. You mentioned the work you're doing at the Brennan Center. I want to turn to that in a minute. Uh, I have to ask you, and Peter and I were just talking about this, there was this (laughs) incredible story in the Washington Post uh, a couple of months ago about the Trump 
uh, presidential personnel office. It appears to be quite the party place. Did we ice? Is that what you yes, were saying? Yes, people are like drinking, they're vaping on the couch. It's apparently the social hub of EOB. Uh, I enjoyed seeing you when I came to your office. I don't recall anyone handing me uh, a beard. I don't recall vaping. What did you make of that story? Well, look, sadly, I wasn't too surprised by it. Um, you know, a lot of the work that we did in the presidential personnel office, and you and anyone who worked in our office, I think, will say the same, is that uh, we had to pay attention to really small details, uh, and we had to... Um, uh, focus on a lot of these administrative a aspects of our jobs that really just, quite frankly, weren't sexy. Another example of this is, early, I think it was yesterday, uh, there was a story in Politico about uh, the confirmation of a set of FTC nominees. Right. And uh, Maureen Olhausen, who's a holdover from the Obama administration, has decided that she's not going to move out of her commission position so it, until she it, gets confirmed for a judgeship, exactly. So as it, it, so it could free up uh, the seat for somebody else to to fill in. Now look, um, that's the kind of detail that my team uh, in presidential personnel would have been focused on, and we would have had a plan in place in advance of even nominating folks. Uh, and so we didn't really, frankly, we didn't have time to have that much fun. Right. And I don't want to make it seem as if we didn't do team building because we did. Uh, you know, we celebrated birthday parties and we would uh, try to uh, have some sort of uh, social event, especially around the holidays. Uh, but <laughs> that, I think it was definitely the exception. No, it definitely is. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are here with Rudy Mirbani. Uh, you can follow Rudy at, at Rudy Mirbani and at Brandon Center. Uh, he served as the assistant to the president and the director of the presidential personnel office under the Obama administration. He is now Spitzer Fellow and senior counsel at the Brennan, the Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, the Brennan Center has kicked off a brand new initiative on uh, shoring up our democracy. You all announced this initiative uh, in an op-ed in USA Today that uh, Preet Bharara, the former U.S. attorney in uh, Manhattan, uh, and Chrissy Todd Whitman the EP, former EPA administrator under President George W. Bush. The two of these uh, folks are Democrat and Republican are co-chairing this. Um, we just spent the last half hour talking about an initiative at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress that's kind of looking at post-Trump, what do we need to do in order to get back to where we all think the country should be. Talk a little bit about this initiative and what you hope to achieve. Yeah, so building off of that conversation, we really believe that there will be a moment, uh, maybe not while President Trump is still in office, but definitely when he leaves office, to move forward with a set of reforms to ensure that some of the activities uh, and uh, conduct that we see playing out, not just in the Trump administration, but that we've seen uh, uh, by other administrations as well, uh, th that there are... Uh, uh, sort of um, th the right set of guideposts and structures in place so that uh, to, to prevent that conduct. conduct. So for an, as an example, uh, it's not normal for a president to be trying to interfere in the specific workings uh, of criminal investigations in the Department of Justice. Uh, it, it is no longer normal for a president to not release uh, their tax returns. Uh, it is no longer normal for a president... Uh, to uh, sort of flout the fact uh, and and uh, uh, or I, I should say uh, not try to meet the standards of ethical conduct that apply to other government employees. And so um, 
as you mentioned, uh, the effort is co-chaired by uh, Preet Bharara, who folks might remember as the U.S. attorney in New York that Trump fired, and uh, governor, former Governor Christine Todd Whitman. And uh, they came together because they know that these things really matter, that they're important to the rule of law. And as you saw, Chris, when you were in government, a lot of what we did, uh, we did because uh, there was precedent for it. There was tradition for it. Uh, it was the right thing to do, but there weren't necessarily rules and laws requiring us to do certain things. And so the goal here is to look at these uh, norms of government governance that stretch across a number of different topic areas and see, you know, what, do some of these need to be codified? Do formal policies need to be written? Uh, what is it that we can do to um, uh, strengthen uh, our government uh, to avoid some of the things that we are seeing right now that we think, quite frank frankly, uh, is bad for government and, and it's dangerous for democracy? The new initiative that Rudy's talking about was, as I said, announced in an op-ed in USA Today. And there's a, a, two lines of this op-ed that I want to read from Preet Bharara and uh, Chrissy Todd Whitman. Uh, it says... Everyone in the political process must act as if limited by invisible guardrails to avoid abuse of power. But what was assumed to be a solid restriction on improper conduct turns out to be flimsy, relying too much on goodwill or unspoken understandings. And you talk in the process about how, you know, uh, uh, post uh, FDR, uh, people sort of no president had run for a third or fourth term, but FDR decided to do that. And then we have a constitutional amendment that stopped that. Uh, in the Kennedy administration, there was no written rule about not having a president serving, a, a brother serving as your attorney general, but that happened and rules have been changed. And then obviously there was a series of reforms that happened after the Nixon administration in the, the Watergate period of time. So is it is it trying to work on legislation or strengthening the norms or... Um, I often wonder in this entire process, if we simply had Congress being a co-equal branch of government, a lot of these issues wouldn't happen. Or if Congress would utilize the authorities that they currently have, a lot of this wouldn't happen. And I think that might very well be something that the task force uh, looks at. And I don't want to prejudge the outcomes of the work that this group is going to do. Uh, but uh, I definitely think that part of what they'll propose will be new legislation uh, but uh, they may also simply propose that candidates, when they run for office, uh, make certain public commitments to do certain things, like disclose their tax returns uh, before they're running for office. And uh, I, I should say that folks here can learn more about the task force by going to its website. It's democracytaskforce.org. And you'll see that we've brought together an incredible group of folks from uh, both sides of the aisle, from all political backgrounds, uh, to do some serious uh, thinking and work on these issues that we think are incredibly important. So the tax return issue is an interesting one. Um, obviously, there was a law that was, well, there was a bill that got through the California legislature that the California governor then vetoed or did not sign um, that would have required anybody basically being on the California ballot for president would have to disclose mm -hmm. tax returns. Mm -hmm. What do you think about a 50-state approach to, to dealing with some of those, or is that just chaos? I think it depends. I mean, if you're talking about that, uh, you can also talk about possible future constitutional amendments, for example. Uh, and um, I, I think that uh, it's 
something we should look at. I also think uh, folks will want to think about what is it that the major parties require of their nominees uh, before they are formally nominated. Uh, there's a lot of things that could be done. And I know the California example, and there's also some debate about how much we actually would have learned about Donald Trump's finances had he even disclosed his tax returns, uh, which gets to um, uh, some of the reforms that I think our group will look, la- look at around what should be included in the financial disclosures that uh, uh, presidents need to file annually. Um, so uh, I think all of that should be on the table. You know, it's interesting. Those of us that live in Washington, D.C., drive every day by the Trump Hotel, uh, which has become a favorite watering spot for uh, Republican operatives, sadly foreign governments, people who want to not only see Trump administration officials, but at least appear to be supportive of the president. And very clearly written in the lease agreement that GSA um, had with the Trump organization was that there could not be somebody holding office uh, as a owner of that hotel. And so that was something that was clearly stated um, but then not followed, and 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 the lease continues, and Congress has not done their jobs. But fortunately, there's some interesting lawsuits that are now uh, looking at that issue to try to enforce that. Yeah, and it's also interesting that you have a president who supervises the GSA administrator right. who has authority over the contract for uh, his uh, personal uh, uh, business's um, uh, lease um, of the of of the of the space. So uh, I'd say that's a problem. Uh, and um, it, it's something that, um, uh, you know, when you have people holding public office with the potential of being able to enrich themselves through the authorities uh, they're entrusted with, uh, that contributes to a lot of the cynicism that I think is increasing around government. Uh, what is the time frame for the commission to uh, release a report, recommendations? And uh, you, you gave a website. Is there a, a way for the public to provide their thoughts as well? So I think uh, our goal is to make sure that we have something out before the midterm elections. I think that the public should be asking uh, folks uh, in government, those who are interested in government, what they think about some of the problems that we're seeing. So hopefully we'll have something uh, out uh, before then. Um the uh, the the Brennan Center. Uh, I, I would encourage everyone to go to the the Brennan Center's website. If you do have comments about this, uh, please uh, submit them uh, to our organization. Uh, and I think there's going to be future opportunities as well to solicit input from the public. Uh, but the Brennan Center can always use uh, fresh ideas uh, and also the support of uh, your listeners. Uh, we've been here with Rudy Mirbani from the Brennan Center. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill Press. Uh, please follow me on Twitter, ChrisLiu44. Thank Bill Press Show. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island. Jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.